Hello, folks. My name is Michael Pilarski. I'm with Friends of the Trees Society, which I formed in 1978 with the goal to double the world's forest cover. That was always our, our main goal. And of course, uh, since 1978, we're lo still losing ground, but more and more people realize that we do need to increase forest cover on the earth for all those myriad of reasons, climate stabilization, carbon sequestration, the survival of humanity, and so many other species. And so we, we have a big task to do, and it's all doable. This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Since last week's episode was an expert panel discussion on agroforestry, I wanted to expand on that theme and help to bring some practical and actionable information on how to plan your own reforestation project. I reached out to Michael Polarski first since I'm helping to organize and launch the Knowledge Exchange platform for ecosystem restoration camps. And as an advisory council member, Michael has a lot of experience and knowledge on this subject. In today's episode, we'll cover the most important steps in designing and implementing a reforestation project, whether it's for a conservation project or a profitable agroforestry enterprise. So let's dive right in with Michael's calculations on the feasibility of doubling the world's forest cover within our lifetimes. Uh, I did a lot of research and crunched a lot of numbers and came up with what it would take because it seems like such a big job. And so uh, to, to double that world's forest cover at the time, this is 1988 when I wrote this, it was, I was aiming, you know, it would take about 5 billion acres of land uh, to reforest and that would uh, take on approximately 1,500 billion trees or a trillion, trillion and a half trees. There's now a trillion tree initiative going in the world. And at the time, and it's around, it would take about 250 trees per person in the world right now to do this. So, you know, each person's share is 250 trees, not hard to do. Um, the cost of doing, you know, the cost of doing this would be about a trillion dollar, a trillion and a half dollars at a buck each. If you look around the world at the planting prices, and it would take about, uh, and that's just like a fraction of, you know, of the military budget. So there's, you know, I guess the, the richest people in the world just added another trillion and a half to their banks, banks, and just since COVID started. So hey, you know, uh, there's plenty of dollars, no problem there. Um, it would take 6.25 million tree planters to do the project. I'm a tree planter myself. I know how long it takes to plant a tree in various kinds of circumstances. So averaging it out, um, 6.25 million tree planters. There's currently 77 million people in the world and the armed forces total in the world. So it's just uh, you know less than 10% of the world's military forces would suffice it would just be a tiny fraction of the unemployed in the world. In other words, there is no problem with labor. We have, we have labor coming out of our ears and a lot of them would be happy to do tree planting. So we have, we have the know-how, we have the funds are available and the, they're not, they haven't currently made them available, but the funds are around and the, and the labor to do this worldwide, re, re, worldwide reforestation. So, it's very doable, and so I'm glad that Oliver is here to talk with me about uh, some more of the particulars of uh, how we can go about this. 
From those calculations, you can see a bit of a clear roadmap to reaching the lofty goal of dramatically increasing the world's forest cover. Though there are a lot of implementation roadblocks in that simplified range of statistics, you can still clearly see that we don't lack the resources as a global community to get this done. So let's start planning. What are some of the most important things that we need to take stock of in order to have a good shot at success in a tree planting initiative? Well, the um, first identify some projects in your neighborhood. What would you like to attack? What could you attempt? People can start, you know, put a few things in their backyard and uh, pick a project in the, in the urban area or a rural area. What 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 could be done in your area that you could that you could actually get to uh, on a personal level? And uh, once you've identified the site, you'll have to do some um, planning. What kind of trees are you going to use? Um, what kind of techniques are you going to use? What kind of budget would you need? And a lot of this could be done, I would say, volunteer. I mean, if a lot of, and, and this is happening around the world. People, local people get together, they pick a project that they want to improve the local neighborhood, and they, they use uh, in-kind donations and, and volunteer labor, labor. And so it can be done on a pretty small, you might say a small budget for these small little achievable uh, goals here. And every single, you know, worldwide re reforestation will only be accomplished one tree at a time. And so they all add up. And so a lot of it's inevitably going to be a lot of small projects. Um, there's a guy in India, and I can't, uh, some uh, a guru there, and, and he at one point organized a one day tree planting across, I think it was the state of either Maharashtra or, or Karnataka. I don't have the figures in front of me, but he, they planted the, the world record of number of trees planted, you know, deliberately in one day. And it was in the millions of trees. And so he just got all these people just to come out from their villages and just plant trees locally. And they, and they broke the world record of number of trees. Now that record has now been broken by the Philippines. They said, we're not going to let India get ahead of us. So now the Philippines has did, uh, 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 an even bigger day, tree planting day. And so here's a case where a lot of trees can go in at, on the same day, uh, and this is pretty much volunteer. The, the, um, they have to, you say, well, where did they get the trees that quickly? Well, they must have planned ahead because, you know, it, it usually it takes one or two years ahead of time to get the trees planted and ready for reforestation or to get them planted. Now there's another whole uh, range of techniques called direct seeding of trees where you just plant the seed. In other words, you don't have to actually grow the trees and go out there with a shovel or a hoedad and plant those trees. You can actually, a lot of the worldwide reforestation can be done through seeding, which is a lot, you might say easier, quicker, cheaper. Um, and so that's another, that's another whole way that you can do this reforestation. Perfect. That gives us a good starting point. But now let's look at one of the aspects that can kind of trip people up, and that's choosing the types of trees to plant. I'm assuming here that most people listening to this are not aspiring to plant timber plantation monocultures, and so they won't likely be looking at the fastest growing trees with the highest harvest turnover. If we're aiming to return health and biodiversity to our landscapes, and perhaps even grow some delicious food in the process, 
how should we begin to learn about the options for trees that grow best in our bioregion? There's tons of books that will give you lots of this kind of information, but one of the best things to do is to actually do a what I call a horticultural survey of the area. What are all the trees growing there now and that are doing well? If you've got a list, if you've got, oh, let's say a list of 15, 20 trees that are just really very successful in that environment, in that climate, then, uh, and you can actually go down to microclimate, um, then you, you can feel pretty safe. Uh, and, but, so one, they have to be able to survive, they're, they're cold hardy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and another big part of the planning though is uh, what are you trying to uh, get out of the tree planting? Are you just trying to get trees? See, I'm, I'm a trained permaculturist and I think you probably know about that some too, Oliver. But in permaculture, we're trained to create fully functional ecosystems, but at the same time, they're going to help provide for the people that live there. So a lot of parts of the world, they can't just say, oh, we're just gonna plant these trees and stand back and get nothing out of them. In places like Africa, India, and even uh, in some more developed countries, people want to get a, a yield. And especially if we're planting trees on farm fields, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of our reforestation is actually going to take place. Uh, not just on degraded abandoned lands, but also on farm fields. So how do we actually make that farmer more money on that tree planting than they were going to get with their cropping? And so uh, that's where you get into agroforestry and permaculture systems. And we say, oh, we're going to plant a bunch of trees that provide fruits, nuts, medicines, uh, products that will pay, that they will, it will help the local people uh, subsist or create income. So a lot of the plantings I do are designed not only to get trees in the ground, but to be productive assets for the human community that live there and, and create more uh, resources. So what we're trying to do in the world is not just plant trees per se, but we're also trying to really increase the amount of natural resources because natural resources are going down, down, down in the world and populations going up, up, up. And it doesn't take a crystal ball to know that there's a problem, uh, there's, a, there's a big problem coming down the pipeline. And in many parts of the world, there are the, the problem is already there. You know, famine is knocking on the door. And, uh, and so we better plant food plants as part of this whole overall worldwide reforestation. Okay, so now we've created a plan and selected our tree species. But there's still a big problem with a lot of major tree planting and afforestation projects that I want everybody listening to be able to avoid. Now it turns out that the sapling trees that are planted are often very delicate and vulnerable in their early stage of life. I know that the first three years after planting are often when the highest failure rate occurs, and especially in degraded soils and damaged landscapes, trees are even more susceptible. This could mean that a very large percentage of the trees don't survive. And then we just have to start over again and we'll have lost money in the process. How can we do everything possible to ensure that the trees that we plant actually survive to become a forest? Well, it, what, you're, what you're saying is very true. And it's interesting that if you look back into communist China, they had a, in their big leap forward era, they did a gigantic amount of plantings in the, in the country 
And some of them, you know, would have had, uh, you know, like a hundred percent failure rate. You know, they would plant them and they would all die or most of them would die. And there's a lot of projects like that in the world that they, like they're, they're kind of going for the glamour. This might be where like, oh, we're going to plant all these trees in one day, then we're going to walk away and, and, and uh, hope that they make it. So the follow-up care might be more, you might say, uh, expensive and time consuming than the actual planting. And so if you plant them correctly in the first place, they're more likely to survive. And if you plant them at the right time, the more arid the region is, and especially if you're relying on rainfall, the timing is incredibly important. And here in the Pacific Northwest, where I've done tree planting in the inland Northwest, semi-arid regions, you have to get those things planted during right at the beginning of the, of the rainy season, the spring rainy season in our case, and then there, there's enough water and rain to get them established before the, dry, the first really big dry period comes. And so we could get 90, 95% uh, success rate. But, the time, but if, we, if we waited too late into the season, we could have a, a total failure. So the timing uh, in a lot of these things is critical. And then there's a lot of things you can do to make sure that they do survive. And, and so planting correctly, I mean, you can stick a tree in the ground incorrectly and J-root them and they're just gonna die. Or you can put them in with a nice straight taproot down there. Not all trees, but most, a lot of trees have a, a single taproot, especially conifers. And if you stick that in, the, in a shallow hole and the, and, and the root turns into a J, you know, the, instead of pointing straight down and all of a sudden it's pointing, the end of the root is pointing up, it has a hard time uh, writing that. You know, it's not totally a death sentence, but uh, generally in their conifer plantings, it oftentimes is. So you, you want your, it's better to shorten the root so that it fits the hole rather than to stick too long a root into the hole. Some trees, of course, have a more fibrous right ranging system and it's not as uh, likely to be a problem. So it, it varies on the species, but you don't want to J root. That's what we call it in the trade. You don't want to J root those trees. If you have a really long root and a, you might say shallow hole, you can always try for a bigger hole, but sometimes there's rocks or various reasons that you can't get as deep. So you can, so you can trim that root, you might say, to fit the hole. I mean, there's a limit to what you can do. You can't cut off almost the, you, the more root, of course, the better. Uh, but some trees are much better at surviving with uh, small amounts of roots than others are. So again, it's very species dependent. Some trees need so little roots that we can do what we call live staking. And that is where you just take a cutting or a, a pole and without any roots and you just uh, make a hole in the ground and shove that in and it will root uh, it, the cutting will root into the ground, moisture and enough moisture, etc. And uh, in in Mongolia, they had uh, they had situations where they were reforesting along riparian zones, no trees, super dry. They had water at let's say um, twelve feet down, and you know you could. And the only so what they did is they had developed a special machine that would bore a really uh, narrow hole 12 feet down into the ground. And then they would shove uh, these long poplar poles that were like 15 feet long in down into the hole so that the butt end was down in that water zone. And there's still some 
sticking up and those would root. And so that's a real, that's a, that's a form of live staking. Usually staking means that you take something, uh, oh, two, three inches in diameter, sharpen one end, and you actually drive it in with a sledgehammer into a slope. There's enough water that it will root uh, from the bottom and grow. So live staking, cuttings, and uh, drilling holes to get long poles into the groundwater, those are all types of, of tree planting. What are some of the ways that we can take care of the soil that we're planting the trees into? Especially if we know that it's deficient and maybe lacking in nutrients or, of course, the ability to hold water, which is essential. Mulching can be a, a really um, a really big help. Fertilizing, adding fertilizer if, if your soil is not up to snuff in certain things and you want fast growth. Uh, generally, I'm thinking mineral fertilizers. It could also be nitrogen fertilizers, but I'm all I'm I'm a Mr. Organic. Um, one of the founders of the organic movement here in in uh, in the U.S. actually, uh, way back in 1972. So I'm I'm organic all the way, and so we can. So when I say fertilizer, I am not referring to chemical fertilizers. Though, if I was doing reforestation project in a tough situation and I had some chemical fertilizers and and a shortage of natural fertilizers, I you know I wouldn't turn up my nose at a little chemical fertilizer to help trees get established uh, in the initial stage. Shading could be really helpful, especially in a hot, dry system place. Those trees can fry the first year, but by putting up a shade. And in the, in the Northwest, a lot of times it was a cedar shake or shingle, small shingle on a stake that you drove the stake onto in the ground. It could all, it could be cardboard. They tend to melt a little quicker. It could be just uh, piling up some brush on the on the uh, south side if you're in the northern hemisphere or the north side if you're in the southern hemisphere. So shading can make all the difference in the world. Um, sometimes in, in a lot of places in the world, unfortunately. Uh, you have to protect them from getting eaten. You could plant a bunch of trees and, and the neighbor's goats and cows, et cetera, just go out there and just and uh, just eat them all up. And so in some cases, it's fencing or putting thorny branches around them. I was it's I was in in uh, Nepal and I have some great shots of this uh, photos of there. Here's a pasture with these cows and goats wandering. You know, you know, we're going to say cows. You better stay with them goats here cows wandering around in the field and there was these t trees these towering trees that were that were like on these pedestals that was that were way up a, you know where the browsing animals the, the cows couldn't reach them and what they had done there is they had piled up a little a, 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 a made a tower of stones and 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 that that they had planted they had uh a bunch of soil sort of down the middle of it and down the court of it. And they planted the tree, oh, like five feet above the level of the field. And as the tree grew, its roots totally encased that stone. And it was just sitting there as a tall tree in a, in a pasture of cows to where, they, where they couldn't eat it. So that's a tremendous amount of effort to go to to keep the trees out of the browsing animals height. I, I doubt there's, I don't know if there's anywhere on the wells in the world except Nepal where someone would go to such extremes, but that's uh, an idea of, of, of getting, usually a lot of times it's a bit of fencing. You might have to fence. Uh, one way to do it would be, and, and we do this in the US and places, you put, you put in, let's say a five acre planting, you fence the whole thing uh, with a metal fencing, 
And then after the trees are, or they say three, four years, the trees are tall enough, they're out of browsing height of deer or livestock. Then you take the fence down and move it somewhere else and use it to establish another five acres. So in other words, you can recycle that fence around the landscape, that, that material, if you're using metal fencing. Um, so any, let's see here. And then you can also maybe in some cases use repellents. There are certain things that will re repel a browsing animals. Uh, blood meal is a common, commonly known one. We have things called uh, tree tubes here. And I remember when they invented tree tubes, uh, when they first came on the market, uh, some of the manufacturers knew I was into tree planting. So they sent me free samples. And now we have tree tubes millions and billions probably planted, you know, made every year, manufactured every year in the country. Um, and those, those are generally two, you're one to two to three feet tall. You, and once you plant your tree, you just put the tree tube around it. They're usually only, oh, four inches or so in diameter. Another interesting uh, thing I would, for, for arid regions, there's a, um, something called the Oasis Grow Box, uh, G-R-O Box. I think is the name of it. It's developed in the Netherlands and it's for planting trees in really arid areas. It, it's, a ba it's a plastic um, thing and you plant the, it goes around the tree sapling that you planted the seedling and the, um, it uh, condenses water from the air and captures all the runoff from any rain and filter and puts it right at the base of the tree. So it's a way of augmenting the, uh, you might say, irrigating the tree without actually taking the water to the tree. It, it gets the water from the natural surroundings. And they, uh, according to their literature and, and their YouTubes, they look like a very successful uh, system of planting trees. They're not, of course, these things are not uh, designed to uh, keep animals off, so you'd still need to do the, the fencing part. But that Oasis grow, grow box looks like a really good, um, a really good tool for certain situations. Okay, now we're really making progress. We've got a plan, we've selected our tree species, and we're armed with a bunch of ways to ensure that these trees survive the vulnerable period. But I know from some experience that what holds a lot of planting projects back is their lack of funding. Can you tell us about some ways to reduce the cost of tree planting? In most cases, you're going to have to go out and collect seed. Um, and so if you can collect the seed from the trees that you want that are growing locally, um, some of these trees are not going to be available in the trade. Some are, or maybe you can't afford them. So that's the, that's the, that's usually the quickest way, but you can also do some things. Some trees grow with cuttings. I mentioned cuttings already. So sometimes you can do propagation from cuttings as well. And that's a, that's a pretty quick way of getting some, uh, getting material. Uh, so seeds or cuttings, do it yourself, uh, do trades. There's a, there's a whole system of um, the botanic gardens and arboretums of the world have a special exchange offer with each other. You know, a, 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 a arboretum in Indonesia can trade material with another one in Malaysia or Vietnam or Brazil or whatever. So they have this whole network we could really use in the ecosystem restoration movement, a similar type of uh, plant and seed exchange. Now, so that people can help people get the, the uh, propagation material they need. You mentioned native plants and ecosystem services a minute ago. 
I plant a lot of non-native plants in some of my plantings. These are more like uh, for, for production service. But the, if you're going to be planting native trees, of course, you know, getting the seed as close to the site from native trees to that area. So it's a local genotype. <clears throat> it's locally adapted, a local land race, as it were. Those are generally going to be preferred to something that was brought in from 500 or 1,000 miles away, you know, from longer distances. So local genetics is a really important thing. And it used to be in forestry that they weren't thinking about that. But back around in the 70s and especially in the 80s, more and more uh, forestry outfits started realizing that the that getting local genotypes uh, was better than bringing in long distance ones. So mm, we have to um, I want an, a seed exchange from around the world, but on the other hand, mostly we should rely on that local, that local genetics. Okay, I am feeling much better equipped to start planting trees now, but I have no doubt that a lot of other questions are going to come up once a project is underway. Where would you recommend that we go for up-to-date information and also where we can exchange and share information on reforestation? Well, these days with the... In it, with the internet, you can just Google so much information or, or search using Ecosia would be a much better uh, way to go, especially in Europe. Um, though I do use Ecosia here in the U.S. as well. It's my first search engine I go to. But um, so I also have a gigantic library of, of books on reforestation. So I do a lot. I have a huge amount of information at my fingertips in my library. Um, going to uh trainings with people that don't know how to do these things um, we need farmer to farmer exchanges uh there these became really popular in in africa and i believe in the, like the 1990s or so where they would bring a bunch of farmers from burkina faso and take them over to nigeria and they would meet the farmers that were doing and and instead of just doing a farmer to farmer visit like from this county to that county which was good they would actually take farmers from from uh, one country to another that similar ecosystems and climate. And they would, they would mix, you know, rub elbows and learn from each other. So uh, people that are doing reforestation should be having uh, little conferences, get together exchanges where they, where they learn from, learn right from the uh, horse's mouth, so to, so to speak. Um, start small would be a key thing. Um, and do trial, a lot of trial plantings are really important. So trial planting, start small, do your research. But as Masanubu Fukuoka said, he says, learning and research and studying is really good. He says, but you don't have to. You can just go out there and start doing it. Learn from your mistakes. Over time, you will make have a higher and higher percentage of success over time because you learn from your mistakes, you learn from your successes. So I wouldn't, I would say that if people want to get in on this, they could just start doing it and and take their take their lumps as it were. But uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a hundred thousand dollar budget, you better do some research instead of just jumping into it without uh, much knowledge. So do your research, start small but start somewhere for gosh sakes. If you wait to become an expert, um, the, we may lose this uh, window of opportunity. Right now, according to an awful lot of ecologists in the world, we have a, a window of opportunity that's only 
you know, depending who you talk to, 10, 20, 30 years, not many people give you much more than that, that we really need to turn the situation around or it's going to get really dire. And there's, there's um, the potential for a huge die off of the world's population is really staring us in the face. And uh, if we don't get our acts in gear, uh, we are very likely to, you know, to have that uh, come about. So um, it's the time is now and the sooner the better. And there are, of course, a lot of things going on in the world. We need to build on what they are. Oliver, I'm glad to know you should. I imagine you're telling your people and listeners about the the information that you're compiling on restoration and reforestation for the whole worldwide movement. So you're one of the sources, right? Increasingly, yes. Between the work that I'm doing with ecosystem restoration camps, also the team at Climate Farmers that I'm working with to build their academy and their farmer community, and of course more than four seasons of podcasts all on restoration and regenerative living. I'm truly hoping that listeners have easy and reliable access to information and wisdom required to make major changes in their lives and in their communities. But here's the most important bit. While there are tons of resources on how to build successful projects and really do the work, it's only worthwhile if you actually get out there and do it. Like Michael said, don't wait to become an expert. Expertise is built as much from experience as it is from knowledge. Go and make mistakes and get better in the process. Whatever your skill set and background, you can apply it to regenerating your portion of the planet. Don't let the difficulties and disadvantages in your life hold you back from being an example of the change that you want to see. The questions of this week are, what are the major flora of your environment? Are the dominant trees, shrubs, or grasses around you much different from the dominant species of 100 years ago? And how would your local ecology change if you work to replant those trees? Remember that this episode is just the beginning of the ongoing conversation on the Regenerative Skills Discord server, where our community is always sharing stories, advice, project pictures, and getting their questions answered. It's free to join, and you can find the sign-up link at regenerativeskills.com. Special thanks to Michael Polarski for sharing his wealth of knowledge. You can learn more about Michael's work at friendsofthetrees.net and globalearthrepairfoundation.org. And don't forget, you can hear the full unedited interview with Michael and get the note packet that goes along with this episode through the subscriptions options on our Patreon page. This week's original music is by Chris Haugen. If you'd like to have your own original music featured on the show, or just want to get in touch, you can email me directly at info at regenerativeskills.com. So until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Mm-hmm.